Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman and welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff. Let's go to the honour list. Winner of the Gourmet Traveller Restaurant of the Year, Senior Australian of the Year, Honorary Doctorates from Macquarie University, the University of South Australia and Flinders University, Author of 11 books, Star of multiple cooking shows, Order of Australia AM, Officer of the Order of Australia AO, Public Company Name. Not a bad list of achievements, especially when you consider this list didn't kick off until Maggie Beer was 46 years old. Maggie Beer is an icon of the Australian food industry. Her larger-than-life personality, her genuineness and likability has endeared her to a range of Australians from the younger budding chefs to the elderly in aged care facilities. She is one of a few people, possibly the only one, that has a publicly listed company named after her, not something she would have been thinking about when she left school at 14 years old. Maggie has never formally trained as a professional chef. She was the cook in the TV show The Cook and the Chef and looked right at home. She has backed her own schools and played an important role in encouraging people right around the country to try their hand in the kitchen. Maggie is responsible for introducing Verges to the Australian kitchen. <laughs> her name is not only on TV and books, but is scattered around on various products such as quince paste, cheese and ice cream in our major supermarkets. In fact, it is difficult to avoid running into Maggie Beer on a weekly basis. Welcome, Maggie. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you, Matthew. Uh, quite something to listen to. <laughs> yeah, and you've come home with a wet sail. You've had, as we say in the financial game, a strong second half. Now, you're not supposed to mention a lady's age, but when I was looking through the list of your achievements, a lot's happened in that, that back end of your life. Yes, yes. One of, one of the things that delights me at the moment that nearly, well, I'm a few months away from 78 and I've never been in more demand. <laughs> no, I know you're very busy. Just fitting <laughs> this in was difficult for you. So congratulations on that. I think I everyone love- aspires to be that busy. Yes, I want ageism sort of thrown out the door. Thank you. <laughs> and, and it's quite incredible. I was running through that and it was a bit of a quip to say it's hard to get away from you in terms of we see you everywhere. Did you ever envisage that a brand name it could be so strong. I mean, Australian food, Vegemite, meat pies, you're in quince paste and verjuice, but you've become an Australian household name. Does that surprise you? Yes, it snuck up on me. I had no idea, Matthew, that I had developed a brand just by doing what I was doing and believing in and, and doing it well. But it was uh, it was a lovely surprise and um, and I'm very proud that I've done it. And now it's got a different um, and exciting trajectory. Definitely. So let, let's go back a bit as we'd like to on the show and discover someone's past to get them to where they are today. Going from Western Sydney as Margaret Ackerman, if I'm right there, to the Barossa Valley as Maggie Beer is quite a journey. was quite a journey. I, yes, was a Westie in the truest <laughs> sense. My parents were um, small business but manufacturers of kitchen equipment with their own factory. And when I was 14, my parents went bankrupt and uh, we lost everything kind of overnight. Must have been coming. So my older brother and I left school. He was 16, I was 14. And we, with the help of an aunt, we kept the family. Was that unusual to leave school at 14 in that era? I think it was most, well, certainly all my contemporaries, I was in a, 
uh, and the ace stream and all my contemporaries went on to leaving and most of them to university so um even then matthew even then <laughs> when you say you lost everything was there a family home that you had to move out of yes yes we had to move out of our family home and it had been our family home well for oh the first five years of our my life we were at Rose Bay until my parents bought this manufacturing business on a separate title to the house backing on each other so yes we lost everything but I had an amazing aunt my mother's older sister Auntie Glad who was um, able to help us financially she paid the rent and Peter and I bought the food until things changed because you went to work at fourteen yes and yes, what was that as, job. <laughs> as the receptionist at gel dye manufacturing the manufacturers of chenille bedspreads and dressing gowns well you've definitely got that pitch right you would have <laughs> you would have answered the phone quite a few times i gather <laughs> yes and i stayed one year to the day one year to the day because my parents made me promise because otherwise even though i hated it otherwise i would have been teamed a flippity gibbet i bet you haven't heard that word I have, but not in that context. I didn't know it had real meaning. I, I thought it was just <laughs> yes. something you said when you were a bit confused. No, no, a flippity jib, you know, flighty, and at, at least that's the way it was used in my family. Yeah. Right. And so then you're 15. Do you go to another job or do, what happens there? Yes. Even though I was in, you know, the mass one, two, phys chem stream, I was allowed one choice at school, either home economics or typing. And because I always cooked, I knew how to cook. I took typing and I had I just happened to be able to type it 100 words a minute. It was just um, very flexible fingers. And so I got a job with a temping agency and they sent me all around the city as a um, not saying how old I was because I was quite mature for my age. And I was a troubleshooter in um, an office when someone was missing. And so I got a lot of experience of uh, fixing up problems. And uh, yeah, so that was how. So what you're saying there is you had two choices. One was to do home science and cooking, which did become your <laughs> career. And the other one was to be a typist, which these days would be uh, redundant, I would have thought. Well, And you, you, you chose typing. It was an extra subject within school, right. you know, a sort of the add-on subject to the academic subjects. I was offered a scholarship, but my parents wouldn't let me because the one thing that was prevalent at the time is that women didn't have to have education and I would just get married and be so I should be a secretary. So um, yeah. oh, it, it sounds like that's still <laughs> sitting with you a little bit. <laughs> just a little, just a little. <laughs> well, no, actually, I shouldn't say that because honestly, I could not have planned my life. I could not have planned my life. And if I had have gone to university and done something traditional, I wouldn't have had the life that um, I've had with Colin and the family. Yeah, Everything creates an opportunity in life. Yes. So how did the family get back on its feet if it, if it went bankrupt, uh, well, it lo you've lost yes. everything, but you're struggling to get back? Did they go back into a small business? Yes, they did. They went into catering because food was the most important thing in our family. Food and music and words were the important things in the family. And they were, so they um, started at a catering at a golf club and then a leagues club and then the Chester Hill RSL club. So they did these, took over the catering in these uh, service clubs in Sydney. 
and um, and they were able to buy a tiny little house at Guildford eventually with my, I think, with my aunt's help. Who was doing the cooking at the time? Were you helping or was it your mother or father? No, no, I was overseas. By the time they got back into working, because it just took my father's everything out of him, uh, by the time they got back, I was overseas and uh, mum was the worker. Dad was the ideas person. Well, you've got um, to have both. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so you'd taken off overseas. Just going back before we get to that period of your life, just cooking in general. You've mentioned a couple of times already that you could cook, that you were yeah. quite good in the kitchen. How did that come about? And now that we can classify you as a celebrity cook these days, <laughs> no, was there any, anyone or any person that you remember at the time that you kind of admired or were looking up to and you could see a vision in the future? No, no, it never, never sort of was front of centre that I could do it. My father had a great instinct for food. I inherited that. I was never taught to do anything. I just, but as a family, we did. You know, we made brawn, we stuffed pig's ears, we, you know, we, uh, I was taught at seven how to choose the ripest pumpkin. So that was just part of life. And so I didn't, the cooking only happened because of the pheasant farm. Which came later. But I always cooked for my friends and, and uh, we always used to have dinner parties in those days, you know, the old days. <laughs> no, well, they'd still do have dinner parties, I think, so they, <laughs> they haven't gone out of fashion. So just to finish off on that, do you, do you remember at the time, whether you had that kind of, okay, so cooking wasn't part of a career-wise, but you had a, you know, your charisma and your personality. Was that obvious to you that, that you would relate to people and you got on well with people? Was that something you had identified or, or you no. just thought, well, that's how everyone gets by? No, I'm actually more, far more of a loner, but I love reacting with people who are interested in ideas, right? But I'm, so I'm an extroverted introvert. How's that? Yeah, I hear they're the most dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank gosh. So food was always really important, but I never, ever thought of it. I was, uh, what I mean to say, I was always searching. I always felt I had totally missed life in not going to university. I felt that for 20 years more. And so I truly was searching and I had amazing jobs because it was the 60s, right? And in the 60s, all you had to do was have a brain and drive energy and an ability to think laterally. I got jobs as assistant to a geophysicist in Benghazi. I got a job as um, the citizenship law clerk with the American government in Sydney, you know, just because you you could. You didn't have to have a piece of paper in those days. Very different now. Opportunity was open virtually everyone, as you say. It's Every, a lot different. Absolutely. You, you took off overseas when you were quite young? 19 when I my first trip overseas, but that was just to New Zealand. And I worked as a lift driver in Milne and Choice, you know, first floor travel goods. <laughs> and you were working your way around, so you were taking any job you could get, I gather. Yeah, exactly. But then I came home probably only six months in New Zealand where I worked three jobs to have the money to go off to Europe. And that, and that, was, the, was, uh, that was the end objective. Years. Yes. You saw Europe as um, – you think you were searching for something if you, if you weren't going to university? Were, because you're, you're very outward looking. 
I was searching for adventure and um, <laughs> and I, I met a Scotsman who is still my great friend in life. And so I was really following him too. <laughs> right. But did you leave the Australian shores with someone? No, no. On my own. On um, my own. And which, where did you land was quite first? tricky. In Naples. We went by boat in those days. And I landed in Naples and I hated Italy because I was blonde and curvaceous and young. And now when I think about my love of Italy now, at that time in 1965 or so, as a single woman traveling on her own in Naples, wasn't the best idea. No, but you were a bit naive, so you did I it was anyway. Very <laughs> I was very naive. And did you stay long in Naples or did you get out of there and head somewhere no, else? No, I got on the train to Vienna where I met with friends that I'd made in New Zealand and went skiing from there to St. Anton. So That sounds um, a bit more exotic. <laughs> well, friends who were working with the Atomic Energy Commission in Vienna and and then met up with our Scottish friends and we went skiing. I, I became a skier, which was a wonderful thing. You said you went away for four years. You did a whole <laughs> host of jobs from what yeah. I can gather in that four yeah. years. Well, was that the building blocks for your future life, do you think? Were you, you, you're obviously very capable because you turned your hand to a lot of things and you were getting an education in life, I gather, at that stage as opposed to a formal education at university. Absolutely. I was getting a, an education in life and, and I've always thought so long as you're enjoying what you're doing, even while you're searching, it becomes part of a a jigsaw of life. It's never wasted if you can put energy into it and learn something. Even cooking in a sailing school in Scotland where I got the sack after six weeks because I used the whole of the larder for the three-month sailing um, period. Even that. Good, good lesson for a restaurant thing. later on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I didn't learn that all that well, that one. That was a bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what were some of the jobs? So, a sailing school, you were a cook? Yes, sailing school, a whiskey barmaid in uh, Lahore, Argyle. I got a job with Thomas Cook in London and I taught myself um, German while at workers' education classes the six months before I left. And they, they offered me a job as a, a translator because I, I have a very good ear, but I had no grammar. <laughs> None at all. So there was a fair bit of, I was going to say bull, yep. <laughs> um, but really Sa it was- Salesmanship, maybe. Perhaps. I got British United, I got accepted as an air hostess and went to the training for several, for ages and then hated it. Um, I think the job in Benghazi was amazing. It was an eye opener. It was adventure. It was all adventure. And if Naples was a bit confronting, was Benghazi even more so? It was in a way, but it was also very cloistered in that we all lived in what they call the mess, but we had to learn enough Arabic to just be able to cope with shopping. And it was, um, Gaddafi was there, of course, but that learning a bit of Arabic helped me out of tremendous trouble later when instead of the first class airfare back to London, I, I took the money and went by native taxi. Native <laughs> taxi? With five others in the yes, and and eating and with families on the border and you know I was naive but I always got away with it. <laughs> and what was it in this period that you, I think you've mentioned him already? You met Columbia. Was was that later? 
That was when I came back to Australia. I had a job as um, assistant to the general manager of ANSET General Aviation, which was light aircraft. I went for my first annual holiday skiing at Threadbow and there was no snow. So I threw my job in, rang up Kurura Chalet at Mount Buller and said, have you got a job? Because I want to ski. And they said, we need someone to make sandwiches. So I went down and six weeks later, I met Colin and he'd just done his commercial pilot's license in New Zealand, but couldn't get a job. But of course, we connected over light aircraft because they used to let me fly in the co-pilot seat, not in the small aircraft. So that's how it all happened. Is that because you like going places or you actually like flying? We're scared stiff of flying if the weather was bad, but I liked going places. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got a sense of fun and we had a lot of fun. Before we go back to Colin, what brought you home from Europe? Four years is a long stint. My father was very ill and um, he, he died soon after. So that was the reason for six months after. Yes. Okay. Then you met Colin and struck up a relationship, which is still still exists today. Well, we married 16 weeks after we met and we're both risk takers and both our parents were small business people and we were mature and um, I'm very happily married. That's a great story. And I always think was, you looked at it and thought, well, beer is a good surname if I'm going to be a, a celebrity cook down the line. <laughs> you didn't no. think like that? It wasn't. Definitely not. It wasn't, I mean, well, wasn't that strategic? It was, no, it was easier to be Maggie Beer than Maggie Ackerman. So, yes, I did think of keeping my own name, but it was just, it was January 70 and that was just a bit too adventurous, I suppose. My wife kept her surname and her family still addressed letters to her as Mrs. Kidman. So there's some people <laughs> some people still don't get it. But anyway, we push on. So Colin was a pilot. Where was he living? Was he Sydney based, Melbourne based, or was he actually in the mountains? No, no. He he'd done his commercial pilot's license in New Zealand and came back to Australia when, that's when we met, he, he got a job pouring beers at Mount Buller. And so it was just this circumstance. But it was when in 1969, there was this real tightening of the belt and said, I don't know if it had gone bust. Anyhow, for nearly three years, no one took on pilots. So he never actually got to, he flew commercially in New Zealand in light aircraft, but he never got to progress it. And I liked that he never did because I rather liked him on the ground. <laughs> Let's get to the pheasant farm, which yeah. is over, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in around Adelaide where you are today. Uh, no, Barossa Valley. Barossa, Barossa Valley, Valley, sorry. Right in the South heart Australia. of Barossa. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have associated to just Adelaide. What what inspired a pheasant farm? It probably wasn't that common in Australia at the time, I gather. No, well, it wasn't. Um, and it was Colin's vision because when he was flying in New Zealand, he would see wild game and we're ideas people all the time. There were ideas and this was his idea. It was his vision. And I was happy to go along with it. But Really, it was when he was awarded the Churchill Fellowship to study overseas game bird breeding. That was really the beginning 
of things. It was a springboard to everything else we did. You bought the farm, but then you went back to Europe. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. Uh, on the Churchill Fellowship, he won the ability to have a 12-week tour to England, Scotland, um, Germany, and America, where they did a lot of um, game bird breeding. And so that's where we saw the concept in Scotland, the border of Scotland, of the farm shop where everything you raised, you sold from the farm. And it was a turkey farm and they even sold the feathers. So we mm -hmm. came back with this aha moment and um, started the farm shop on the farm, which was also a vineyard. And that was within a year, it was the restaurant, 15 years of the restaurant. You know, it sort of, it all went from there. Starting a restaurant, let alone a shop, a shop's difficult enough, but starting a restaurant, you were doing all the cooking? Absolutely. And I mean, the audacity from, we decided I was working too hard as the farm shop and my mum lived with us and she, she worked so hard helping. We'd just close it and extend it to make it a restaurant because we'd make, <laughs> we'd make a better living. And it was an amazing time. And we never did it for the money. For nearly 11 years, we probably lost money, but the vineyard supported it. You know, there are, in agriculture, there are peaks and troughs, and it was a good time for vineyards at the time. And that's until we won the Restaurant of the Year for Australia, which was the hugest surprise. But yes, I was always cooking. To take you back, do you remember the first seating with the restaurant and when you opened? And how it went? Did anyone turn up? Were you how nervous <laughs> oh, were you? No. Oh well, we were so exhausted. I don't think we were nervous. But our first booking was eighty teachers from the high school. Okay, and so we had their booking. So we asked for a fixed menu for a, must have been a Christmas uh, celebration, and so we used their money to buy all the crockery and the cutlery because things were just so tight. And the food was fantastic. I know that because it was table to oat, you know, there was no choice. So I knew I could cope with that. But we didn't figure on the 80 people coming all at the same time. And some of them, we had to sit in the vestibule where you enter the farm shop next to the toilets. <laughs> well, they'll, they'll remember that as well. <laughs> I don't think they ever came back. <laughs> uh, well, someone did. <laughs> well, it just was a success from day one in terms of, the weekends were always, always full. And so that doesn't sound like you got a rest from the farm shop. It sounds like it went up a notch. Well, it did because our daughters were very young and thank heavens for mum living with us on a house on the property. But we used to, you know, do our own linen. Colin would do the delivery of, of pheasants to Adelaide. Um, I'd pickle quail eggs at night, peel the quail eggs and tell the girls stories and yeah, it was. We worked incredibly hard. Sounds yes, like a real family business. It was, and we were just doing what I loved. Colin really supported me in because I'd found my passion that I had always been searching for, and it was always there. It was always there that you like cooking. You, you kept walking away yeah. from it, and then eventually you <laughs> took it head on. So that 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 winner of the 
um, gourmet traveler restaurant. Was that a shock and did it change your life forever? Yes, it was not only a shock to us, it was a shock to the whole of Australia, I think, <laughs> that, that this little country restaurant, I remember the huge affair in Sydney and here I was sitting on the, the table when they made the announcement and I just, uh, the shock was just immense. Just There was no so heads up immense. whatsoever. None. In you, fact, you were a finalist, I gather. That's what you knew. Yes. Well, I there was a finalist in each state. Yes, I knew that. But you know, little a country restaurant in South Australia on back roads, and Patricia Wells from Paris was the judge, and she said to me later, "I knew you had no idea you were going to win." because I'd got a plane from Melbourne having been to a symposium of gastronomy in Geelong and I and we were camping and I still had boots on and I'd put a fresh skirt and blouse on at the airport. And she said, I just looked at the way you were dressed, <laughs> those <laughs> shoes. You had no idea you were going to win. <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or not. <laughs> Was the good thing was you won. You won. <laughs> but it changed our life. Changed your life. And from that point, were you booked out for six months in advance? Was it as simple as that? Oh, yes. Oh, well, it was all of a sudden from being always full on the weekends and having a cult following of South Australians. We had helicopters in the ram paddocks. We had people screaming for uh, reservations and we had to put someone on just to answer. In fact, it was sassy to just answer the phones, nothing else and try and fit in bookings. But it was incredibly exciting, but after a while, Colin had had enough. Before you go on to that, how many people did you have in the kitchen at the peak? At the peak, there were three, only three, myself and two others, and we would do 80 people and a lot of it a la minute. Uh, I mean, we worked so hard, uh, but then I then it brought people in to come and work with me for that last year that it was the most amazingly exciting thing. Alex Herbert, who went on to Bird, Cow, Fish, Steve Flamsteed to Giant Steps, you know, these people that we had, it was just a great, great group of people doing wonderful things together. But it wasn't long after that that you, uh, did you sell the restaurant? No, no. You closed Colin, it? Colin came in one day because it was burning me out because I am obsessive. <laughs> and um, and I would never leave the stoves. And even with good people around me, you know, a control freak. And um, and he came in one day and said, "It's the restaurant or me." And I, I didn't even think I chose him. Um, and I said, "But I want four months to let everyone know, and I want to go out on such a high." And that's exactly what we did. Oh, terrific. Did you start yeah. thinking in that four months there was another opportunity though because you had start to have become a brand name with the win? No. Colin said to me, look, we can manage without it because we've got the small paddy business on the side and the verjuice, but um, you have to close the door for another one to open. And Colin's much more sage and funny than I am. He's He's got this amazing wit, but he also has a very clear way of seeing things and I'm totally emotional. So <laughs> uh, um, it's for him, I really believed him and it happened. But and, I was But what was the door what was the door that opened at that point? Well it didn't open for nearly a year because I was so burnt out. I was so exhausted I just retreated and slept. And then I remember in the same week Anne Summers rang me and said, would I write a column in the good weekend? 
once a month. Stephanie Alexander, my great friend, rang and said, I think we all should have a holiday in Italy. And those two things within days of each other, I thought, oh, there are other things. And then I guess I was depressed for that year. And then at this, about that same time, we were approached to export our pate to Japan, which meant building an export kitchen, which we did. So there was so, a co- collection of things that happened that pushed you back towards yes. food, but not the intensity of the restaurant. That's right. Yes. Now, my first memory of you, I'm more of an eater than a cooker, I must <laughs> say, but was with Stephanie Alexander. Ah. That the two of you kind of came as a package. It might, might have been a book at the time or, or oh, something. Oh, it would have been she, the Italian book. It yeah. would have been our Stephanie and Maggie in Italy. And she was based out of Melbourne, but you became close friends. Yes, we did. Very, very different people, but she has so much knowledge and and we've, we're, we've been close friends for nearly 40 years. Yeah, since 84, that's when we started our friendship at a symposium of gastronomy. And so you started to export the pate. Why Japan? What was the interest there? Well, Japan was because it was Adam Wynn of the Wynn family of, of uh, Mount Adam Wines exported his wine to Japan to a great aficionado and in food and wine. And he would take as a gift our pate to Toshio Yasuma. And Toshio loved it so much. He was the one that approached and said, will you build an export kitchen and I will buy, I will lend you the money to do it. Um, that's how much he wanted it. Uh, we luckily we had we didn't go that way. When I say luckily, um, the bank supported us, but it didn't work. It didn't work because first of all, there was Newcastle's disease hit Australia the week we I was over in Tokyo for the launch, and then um, it was a case of the cost of Aquas accreditation. Every time we made the pate for export, you had to have uh, an inspector with you while the birds were killed. You had to have an inspector while you made them. You had to have an inspector. were horrendous, still are. Mm-hmm. So you, without volume, we just couldn't make a go of it. But it gave us the most amazing friendship and my 10 trips to Japan were mainly because of him. And that setback didn't seem to set you back though. It seemed that you're, no. you're, 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 name and, and your, we talk about Bram was on the rise. Did the good weekend help that? I'm not sure that it did, but it wouldn't have done any harm. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of luck as well as hard work in life. And the luck, I guess, came from something terrible that happened here in South Australia, the Garibaldi affair, where a young a child died from Metwurst. And so all of a sudden, overnight, things became very strict in hygiene standards. But we were already ahead of the game because we built this export kitchen to such a high standard, it could have been an operating theatre. So we were then able to really go much broader with our product within Australia. And that so, was- so you went from pate, what else was on the menu? And that was, we built the Quince kitchen next door. So all the paste we had, the verdure. So they were the three staples for those first years, for the first five years. And then just variations on the pate, variations on the pastes. And then my sparkling um, non-alcoholic as well, which is based on verdure. So because I was always thinking, always looking how we could utilize 
the produce that we had to hand within South Australia. And where does someone who, who grew up as you did come across verjuice? Ah, come across I'm quince re- paste as, as a product <laughs> people would like? Well, interestingly, it's all I'm an avid reader. But of course, when I started the pheasant farm, the restaurant, I had no one to learn from because it was all about game. So I would look to books and I came across wonderful books from French women cooks that were translated into English, fortunately. I really studied then the produce, the foods of the Mediterranean, because here in South Australia, we are a true Mediterranean climate. And so, of course, and we were grape growers, we had quince orchard. And so I just immersed myself in everything from Elizabeth David, Madeleine Command, Paula Wolfert, and when French women cook. And I read about verjuice, but it was called verju. And when you really are involved in food to this extent, you can taste as you read. <laughs> and I, it's true, it's true. And I knew that this was something. And here we had Ryan Riesling grapes that year we couldn't sell. So with my friend Peter Wall, who was a director up at um, Ulumba and a grape food an amazing food person. I said, can we make some? (laughs) And so he put his mind to it. We didn't have anything to taste. We didn't have anything to read about. But really, it was about uh, unfermented green grapes at Veraison, you know, while they, not much juice, but tartness that was a gentle acid. Once again, something that's gone wrong became an opportunity. Absolutely. It's always a good sign of an entrepreneur. There's always an opportunity (laughs) in any situation. And then then Australia, if we move along a bit, Australia became to know you and people still watch it today. I was talking to someone yesterday who said, I still watch reruns of The Cook and The Chef. I know. I know. And that that obviously was a, a bit of a sleeper as well. People have watched it on rerun and it was back in 2006. Yes. Did you enjoy being in front of the camera? I enjoyed doing it because when they asked me, the ABC asked me to do it, at first it was on my own. And I said, no, I can't do that. I need someone to bounce off. So once we'd found Simon and I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I want it to be subliminally all about seasonality because I I hate that people don't understand seasons Mm -hmm. because you can get anything almost all the time now. And so they agreed to all of these. And I said, I'm not going to Adelaide. You've got to come to me. So I I didn't need to do it. So I was able to put all that uh, structure around it. And then I loved it because every time there was an ingredient that was the key and I didn't know what Simon was cooking and he didn't know what I was cooking. He walked in the door and it just ran. There was no, I'd made that stipulation, no second takes, no, and it just flowed. So we didn't even know. And there was a great chemistry between the two of you. Well, we're so opposite. We're so opposite, but he's very funny and I love wit and we learned from each other. So we didn't even know the camera was there. So you got to not know whether the camera was there. It was great. But after four years, I said, I just can't do this. It was exhausting. It was exhausting. And and do you think, obviously, the English have got Mary Berry and she's done incredibly well, <laughs> but as also a cook, do, do you think that thematic that you were able to structure there with the ABC resonated more globally? And obviously, people like the idea that the cook could deal, yes. could operate with the chef and you had things to learn off each other. 
Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because what you saw is what you've got. You know, there was no, um, and we were having a great time. So I think that resonated. And we had it at that family-friendly time of 6.30. Uh, we were offered it later. Both of us said no. We had a very smart executive producer, Margot Philipson, who was just so instrumental in making sure we never lost our way. That exhausted you at the time, but you've been back on television with the Great Australian Bake Off and, and oh, you've, yes. you've been a guest on MasterChef and so on. So you obviously like being on a camera and talking to an audience. That suits your well, personality? No, no, I like sharing what I know and making people think they can do it too. That's what I like. And the exhaustion part was that I was also running the business at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was the exhausting part, as Simon was, you know, exec chef at the Hilton. Full-time jobs. <laughs> yeah, and we did this 40 weeks a year. So that's why it was exhausting. But it's sharing knowledge and making people think, my gosh, I can do that. I want to demystify it so everyone knows how easy it is to cook. Yeah, I haven't found that secret yet, but <laughs> I'm sure all of us can do it if we put our minds to it. <laughs> Then you branched out on the range of products again. You kept adding products and there was yeah. the, the ice cream and various things. Uh, but eventually you you sold part of your business into a publicly listed company. Yes. And that was a big step? Oh, heavens, yes. It was a huge step and it wouldn't have happened if we didn't get to know um, Hugh and Bridget Robertson and believe that I could could control like we only when we sold half it was 49 percent, and we kept 51 because needed to know that trust was there and and we had chantelle i'd gone and found chantelle chantelle millard uh, chantelle millard that was the vital part of it and in fact chantelle was with us for a couple of years before we sold the half. But the main reason was we didn't have a succession plan. Neither of our daughters wanted the business. They could see that food manufacturing, if it's not your own, because I was always the ideas person. I was the one that was driven. They had their own. We just didn't have a succession plan. So what were we going to do? Run it until we drop dead? We needed to have our time in the sun because all those years, everything went back in the business. So um, that's why, but we did it in those two steps. First, first you sold the 49% and then you sold yeah. everything into the public listed vehicle. That's right. But when we sold the 49%, the majority stayed with the company for to be able to progress. And yes, that's how it happened. And it wouldn't have happened without Chantel uh, Millard and it wouldn't have happened without our trust in, um, in Hugh. So Chantel, just so everyone understands, Chantel was the ran the business in a yeah. financial sense, an operational sense. Yes. While you were the creative person in the sense that you yeah. you're on the products and producing yeah. um, all the products, and Hugh and Bridget were the brokers, the stockbrokers who yes. who you met and obviously convinced you that your brand could be <laughs> could be a, a, a big business success. It took several years. For them to convince me. Well, you got there in the end. Well, yeah. What can you tell us about being in a publicly listed company? Is it more difficult than you thought? Is it quite enlightening? How would you describe it? I actually enjoy it. I enjoy it because we have a small board and 
I'm not tactical, but I'm very gut driven and I am protecting the brand in terms of quality. And, you know, I'm, I have my business acumen would be as little as that in, in many ways, but I learn quickly and I've got a lateral brain. So, uh, I can often see, um, I can often see things quite clearly. I gather quality is not compromised. Absolutely not. And that's why I sit on the board. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I have such a strong relationship with the whole of the team, Maggie Beer Products and the Barossa, because I trained the operations manager, production manager, I trained from when she was in her early 20s. She thinks like I do in terms of quality. I trained her palate. There is this sense of, of there's a huge sense of loyalty. Even though we don't own the company anymore, I still see it as mine. Well, you've got your name on it, which which is very important because that's the brand as we've talked about. But you've also given you the opportunity to branch out into other products. So cheese has become a mainstay in our house, the, the Maggie Beer yeah. cheese, and that seems to be quite a big selling product, a leap forward for the brand. Oh, it, it certainly is. And and I rejected it at first. It was Chantelle and it's been a really really exciting part of the brand and ideas there's always ideas coming through and yes. why would you reject because cheese is a fairly big category especially the cheese you're selling that <laughs> that higher end yes. cheese well if i'm truthful i rejected it because everything else up to there i had made myself and i wasn't going to start making cheese and so it was not being able to make that transition from i didn't have to make everything myself, I could find people that I believed in or we believed in to make it for me. That was a big jump for me. But at the same time, quality control, the way it looks, the product itself, you've got a lot of control over. Uh, I wouldn't say- You're just not physically making them. Influence. Influence. I certainly, I taste every new product. I feedback on it and I love it. New product development was always the thing that I loved the most. And what are you most excited about in terms of new products that you've got today? I must say, I'm very excited with what we can do with cheese, even on another level. I am very excited by just the progression of the streams of different flavors, different ideas, different ways of of that entertaining space, everything about how to make it really easy for people to entertain at home with real quality, but always with a twist, you know, something that has that essence of of me. (laughs) (laughs) Which people are bought into over the years because they enjoy that. But the publicly listed company hasn't had a, a it hasn't been smooth sailing. Um, to, to go back to your Scottish sailing terminology in the old days, it hasn't been smooth sailing. Things like Paris Creek have been tough battles, which Paris Creek is dairy based out of the Adelaide Hills, and it's been difficult. So, getting back to the question around the public entity, it hasn't all been smooth sailing. Is that sometimes difficult to contend with? Well, yes, it was difficult in that um, the businesses that were bought. Before we were full owners, I um, they were on board before we were full mm-hmm. owners. And if we had have been, uh, it might well have been very different. But I think Paris Creek is a very beautiful brand and a fabulous asset if we look at it differently. 
and that's that's what's uh, in our heads right now. We have divested um, St. David's, which was a beautiful little company. Whatever the buying the hamper company has been really exciting for me. Just so everyone's clear, so another business that you bought subsequent to your business being sold in is Hamper Emporium, which is Australia's biggest hamper company. That's right. Well, the exciting thing about the hamper company to me, it's dealing direct with the public again, because that's how we started with the farm shop, where I made everything I sold to the customer. The Hamper Emporium, I no longer make everything, but the quality, the excellence is so strong and it allows us to be in touch with the customer again. Because there's a lot of Maggie Beer products now these days in those hampers that complement what was already there. That's exactly right. And there's a lot more to come in terms of exciting things that could be done that we can do and do at a higher level and be able because we're selling direct. And that's, that is really, it's very exciting. And of course, it hasn't been smooth sailing. I mean, look at all the problems of COVID. And yes, we had lots of uplift, but supply chain, supply chain, transport, and, you know, a difficult half year. But we now are just so excited, so excited by the actual business and the growth strategy and the fact that, um, we never stop with the ideas. And, and another nice point is the Hamper Emporium is another business started by females. Yes, uh, from Kangaroo Island. <laughs> See, so, South Australia rocks. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you're excited. There's a great growth opportunity yeah. in that Hamper business that complements your business, which is terrific. Absolutely. It's that synergy. It's that synergy that's so exciting. Yeah. Just go back to Chantal, who's been with you for that period. She's recently announced that she's leaving. As you say, it's been a hard couple of years, and and so we've all felt that at various times. Is that that a loss that you obviously value relationships enormously? Oh, of course. Um, Of course it's a loss, personally. But does it create an opportunity also? Absolutely. Chantal has done eight years with the company. She has been the reason we are where we are today. Chantel is really quite extraordinary, but in her stepping back, she feels and I feel, we feel that the opportunity is to bring someone else in who has a different trajectory. Chantel, financially, operationally, manufacturing, that was her, that was her bag. She has delivered us a business that how many times have I said we couldn't have done without her? But I also see that then can come another person who can say, well, now let's go. So yes, I think I will always miss her because (laughs) she's not straying far, you realize. She's staying through until we have the right person in place and um, she'll always be on I'd always be on the phone to her if I need. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Just before we, we leave the business and talk about the, the what you're doing with aged care, which is obviously important mm-hmm. to you, just the a lot of people when you talk about Maggie Beer Holdings as a listed entity, they'll say, well, there's two attached to Maggie. And Maggie's, you know, not to be rude, we're gonna, we've got an <laughs> 80, 80-year-old we've got an 80-year-old US president these days, but she's getting old. What happens when she decides to retire? Does the brand also die? Have you got any thoughts on that? Can you assage any any feelings towards that? How does it? How does the brand live on beyond the working life of yourself? Well, tricky question, but I tell you, there's no retire. I mean, 
even Colin, who would like me to not work quite so hard, does understand that I'm excited by what I do and um, I see myself doing it for a long time to come, being strong um, and, and healthy as I am. But I think certainly with Maggie Beer Products, the ethos is so entrenched in everything that's really important. In looking for a new CEO, it will have to be someone who can come in and understand and relate and carry on that philosophy of excellence and provenance and people and Australia first. But, you know, like one day, like Peter Lehman, I'll be gone. But I think the base is so strong because it's been 40 years in the making that I... I'm not ready to, to <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ready to think about, you know, moving on that way. No, I did I did say retire. I didn't say anything else. So <laughs> well, no, that, retiring's not on the on the agenda. It sounds in some like, way or another. In some way or another. Yeah, it sounds like the brand's strong and it's got good foundations. Yeah. Just before we leave, aged care has become a bit of a passion yes. for yourself and we see you on the television saying uh, older Australians should be eating better or have the right to eat better. What, right. what What's made you think along those lines? Because it's now become almost a political issue as well because we've had royal commissions into aged care facilities and one of the things is are, are our older people eating well enough? What got you hooked on that and what do you want to achieve out of it? Okay, well, it started with being made Senior Australian of the Year and having a year that I was had 900 requests to speak. And the one that was most important, because obviously I didn't do 900, was a 1,000 CEOs of aged care for their annual general meeting. And so as a keynote speaker, I did a lot of research and I found some good and a lot of terrible homes and organisations. And so I started doing masterclasses all around Australia, bringing 30 cooks and chefs together to share with them what I knew that they could take back to their homes. But then we found unless the management was on board, they'd hit a brick wall. So then I got the government involved and we've done online training, but it's all about, I have this strong, strong belief that every single person deserves the right to really good, simple food, but no one more than those in aged care unable to to cook for themselves too, that have to just be looked after. Mm-hmm. I, they have to have food full of flavour and and scent of, of realness and nutrition that comes from the goodness in the food in every bite to give them the energy to be involved in life to the end of their life and something to look forward to. Do you think it's working? Are you getting traction? I'm getting traction um, and I've been given $5 million over three years by the federal government that doesn't start till next year. But in what we are hoping to do, it's all about training the cooks and chefs, elevating them in terms of giving them the kudos, the respect, the knowledge to be able to really bring about change and to work with management. And we have programs ready to go as soon as the funds coming come through. And I really believe we can make a difference. And we have made a difference along the way, but not nearly enough. 
There's so much we have to do, but there are a lot of people doing wonderful things and we need to bring them all together. It's, it sounds like Colin will be happy that you've got that spare 5% <laughs> that you're filling up with that. <laughs> sounds like you'll have a bit of managing to do there, but we all do that yes, in relationships. Yes. Well, yes. I feel bad that I went to university because I've, <laughs> I haven't had the colourful um, variety that you have in life. So congratulations and good luck with the business is it ongoing and because we all get to see it now it's in the public arena and well done and what you've achieved and a lot more to come thank you matthew thank you lovely